Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. The year was 2005. Earlier that year, the New England Patriots had won the Super Bowl. Now their owner, Robert Kraft, was visiting Russia. In fact, he was in Moscow on that day, and to be more specific, he was in the Kremlin having an audience with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Now, you'll have to forgive Kraft. It's understandable that he would be proud. It's hard to get to the Super Bowl, even harder to win it. And so having won, he was very proud of his team. It's no wonder he had with him his Super Bowl championship ring. $25,000 a pop, that ring had gone out to all the players and to the coaches, and he, the owner, was especially proud to have the ring. And so you can understand that that he would would want to show it around a bit, brag just a little bit. Thus it was that he showed this ring to President Vladimir Putin. In fact, he handed it to him so that he could look at it, could slip it on, and Putin looked at it. It was a very large ring. Putin looked at the size of that ring and said, wow, I could kill somebody with this. It was that big. And then Kraft watched as Putin, having admired the ring, slipped it into his pocket, and surrounded by three KGB agents, walked out of the room. And Kraft thought, wait a minute, what? What just happened? Have I just been robbed in broad daylight by a president, no less? Well, that's exactly what had happened. He didn't see the ring again, and so he began to ask, how am I going to get my ring back? He wanted his ring back. So he reached out to the State Department and asked them, can you help me get my ring back? In fact, Kraft didn't talk about this for a number of years. It happened in 2005. He didn't speak of it publicly until 2012. I want to read to you what Kraft had to say about that experience. He didn't give in easily, though they asked him to please don't make a big deal of this. Some years later, he would say this. They told me, meaning the State Department and later the White House, it would really be in the best interest of U.S.-Soviet relations if you meant to give the ring as a present. But Kraft says, I I didn't. I really didn't want to give it. I had an emotional tie to that ring. It has my name on it. I don't want to see it on eBay. (laughs) There was a pause, he says, on the other end of the line, and the voice from the State Department repeated, it would really be in the best interest of our country if you meant to give the ring as a present. Shortly thereafter, Kraft put out a statement that said this, I decided to give President Putin the ring as a symbol of the respect and admiration that I have for the Russian people and for his leadership. (laughs) Curious. Far, by the way, far from the only head of state to do such a thing, we nevertheless look at that and say, I think there's a problem with that. 
I don't think we're supposed to be doing that. I don't think we're supposed to take what isn't ours. In fact, if you remember it, you're able to say that's actually a breaking of the Eighth Commandment. I want to read the Eighth Commandment to you. Actually, you don't need to worry about looking it up. It'll be over before you get there. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 15 says this, You shall not steal. You shall not steal. It's trying to teach respect for other people's property. It's trying to teach that we don't take someone else's property, no matter how much power we may have. That's what the commandment is driving at. Now, my guess is that a lot of us here today, we're, we're a congregation of Christian people. A lot of us here today will say, you know, this is a commandment. Finally, this is a commandment with which I don't have issues. I don't have a problem. In fact, as I come down the list of commandments, I can check this one off. Done. I'm in good shape. I haven't robbed a bank this week. I haven't held up a store at gunpoint. I haven't stolen my neighbor's car. I haven't done any of that. Checked off. Done. I suspect we might think that. Because after all, we are followers of Jesus. We may find this commandment a bit different than some of the others. Some of the others we may have, a bit, have had a bit more challenge with. For example, the commandment that says, you shall not murder. We say initially, I'm good with that. I haven't done that. But then we find over in the New Testament that Jesus says, well... <laughs> Actually, now that you mentioned that commandment, let me tell you, it has to do with more than just refraining from taking someone's life. It has to do with the inner experience of anger and what you do with that. And we say, whoa, that's a bit more challenging. We read the commandment that says, you shall not commit adultery. And we say, some of us, that's good. I haven't done that. And yet, then we come to the New Testament, and Jesus again saying, well, actually, it has to do with what happens first in the mind. And we say, Jesus, you're making this more and more challenging. Or we look at the commandment that says, no other gods, just you and me. And we say, well, I don't worship other gods. I'm not bowing down to idols. I can check that one off the list only to discover that it has to do with the deepest loyalties of the heart. And about then we say, these Ten Commandments are very challenging. So it's a breath of relief. It's a sigh of satisfaction to come to the one today, you shall not steal, and to say, that one, I've got covered. Check it off the list. I'm done. Where are we going to lunch? What's for lunch? Let's move on out of here. Well, maybe we ought to just linger over some details before we move too quickly. First of all, remember the context. These are people who have just exited Egypt. The exodus is underway. They are coming from a lifetime, generations of slavery. Very unlikely that they had much at all by way of property or possessions. 
On the way out of Egypt, however, the Egyptians had loaded them down, loaded them down with gifts and with, with, with jewelry and with other valuable items. So now as they come into the wilderness of Sinai, for the first time, they have things of which they can say, hey, this is mine. You can't take it. And so embedded in the Decalogue is this commandment learned by every civilized and orderly society. You don't take what belongs to others. And we say, well, that's good. But we've learned that. We're Christians. We don't practice that. So what's for lunch? Well, details. Sometimes we need to pay attention to details. Details, for example, like work. Many people here work outside the home. So let's ask a little bit about work. For example, when you go to work and you are paid by somebody to do the work that you are carrying out, you, in essence, have given that time to that person. They have paid for your time. That time belongs to them to give you directions in what you are to do. So let me just ask a question, not meaning to pry. How do you spend your time at work? I was interested to discover that a website called salary.com interviewed 750 employees, interviewed them about their work habits. Do they ever waste time at work? The interesting thing was, as opposed to earlier years, they discovered that people are wasting more and more time at work. I want you to listen to what they say. Here's what it is. A year ago, 69% of respondents said they waste at least some time at work on a daily basis. But the number of people who now admit to wasting time at work every day has reached a whopping 89%. Employees are spending longer periods than ever before wasting time. Employers, be prepared for alarm as you review the newest statistical breakdown. Consider, for example, that 62% of employees waste roughly 30 minutes to an hour every single day. But here's the most disturbing find. 4% of people surveyed waste at least half the average workday on non-work-related tasks. Half. Wasted, or to use the word the commandment uses, stolen. How do they do this? The top four ways are one, talking or texting on their cell phones, two, gossiping, three, internet, four, social media. Wasted. Now, maybe you say, Randy, thank you. Thank you for delving into the details. I, I've got that one now. I don't waste a lot, but now that you've raised it, I won't do that. So I'm done with this commandment. Check. What are we eating for lunch? I say, wait, 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 wait just a minute. A little bit more by way of details about work. I mean, now that we're talking about work, let's talk not just about time, but let's talk about, about things at work. You know, pens and pads of paper and computers and those kinds of things. Because another website has done some work with that, some investigating along those lines. It's called Sephora, and it's a career recruiting and staffing agency. They asked 2,000 employees, do you ever pilfer anything? 
Take something home from work. Take something that doesn't belong to you. I'm using it anyway. I'll just use it at home. Do you ever do that? About 20% of the people overall responded yes. But then they came upon something that they weren't expecting to find. They discovered that as people's level of education increased, so did their tendency to pilfer. As people's salaries grew, so did their need for work things at home. In fact, listen to these words drawn from that agency. They say 13% of employees with a high school education, 13%, said they pilfered office supplies compared with 27% of college graduates and 22% of employees with postgraduate education. Similarly, only 11% of the employees who make between $15,000 and $35,000 per year admitted to stealing office supplies compared to nearly 25% of those who make $75,000 or more. In fact, employees in the highest salary ranges have been known to help themselves to company cell phones and computers. According to Joshua Newberg, associate professor of business law at the University of Maryland, a sense of entitlement is the leading reason for pilfering. Kind of got a little warm in here, didn't it? Somebody turn up the heat. It's just those simple little things. I'm, I'm using them anyway. I'll just use them at home. It's those details. I mean, I can say, I haven't stolen a car, haven't robbed a bank, haven't held up a store. This one I can check off the list. You shall not steal. We're good with it, but we ought to linger over some of the details. You know, details like, say, money. I'm not talking about the money that somebody grabbed from a cash drawer and exits the store quickly. Not that kind of money. I'm talking about the kind of money that, that the checkout person gives you too much of as change, and you look and realize it is. What do you do at that moment in time? You're walking through the parking lot. They're lying on the pavement a wallet, some money. What do you do? You're sitting at a restaurant with friends, a big group. You've had a wonderful meal. Now comes the check. There's 15 of you. People are throwing money out onto the table. Everybody looks at the bill. I know how much it is. Throws money on the table. There's not enough. Hmm. Makes me think of what the writer and editor Craig Brian Larson wrote. He says, a number of people from my church had gone out for dinner, and as we each put our money on the table to pay the bill, one person told a story that reveals much about human nature. She and 20 others were out of town on a business trip. One night after they finished dinner at a restaurant, they asked one of the men who was an auditor, to handle collecting the money and paying the bill. He was glad to do it. One by one, the people around the table paid for their meal and tip. The group left the restaurant, but it wasn't long before the auditor was in hot water with his fellow workers. It turned out he had pocketed the waiter's tip. Hmm. You been at that place? As I was thinking about this, I thought back to two or three incidents some years ago 
I want to be very clear, was not with our pastoral staff, but it was with some pastors. And we sat around and ate, and the bill came, and we all threw money on the table, and there wasn't enough. And we sat around and looked at each other and said, we're pastors. What are you talking about? Went over the bill again, more money on the table, still not enough. What has gone wrong here? It's just details, just little details. When it comes to this commandment, I'm good. Check it off. <sighs> but then the maddening details, the little things, the fine print, the small stuff. It's kind of pointed out by a researcher named Robert Cialdini. Robert Cialdini was interested in knowing something about these kinds of things, and so he went to the Arizona National Petrified Forest because he knew they were having a challenge with the petrified wood disappearing at alarming rates. In fact, at one of the trailheads, there was a large sign in bold letters made it very clear, please do not steal the petrified wood. It's disappearing at an alarming rate 14 tons a year. Keep your hands off. So Cialdini wanted to figure out what was going on. So here's what he did with his experiment. He chose two paths. Along one path, he scattered easily accessible pieces of the petrified wood. But he also put up signs, signs that said essentially the very same thing, it's disappearing way too fast. Please don't steal it. We're stealing our heritage when we do it. On the other trail, petrified wood, no signs. And then he watched. Here's what Cialdini found. On the trail with the signs, the amount of petrified wood stolen was three times what it was on the other trail, which kind of caused him to stagger backwards a bit and try to figure out what in the world is going on. He finally developed two hypotheses as being probable causes for why that had happened. One was this. People say, this is our heritage. It's running out. Better get some while it's left. So they took some. The other was this. People are stealing 14 tons of this a year. My little part won't matter. What's my part when there's 14 tons of it disappearing? And so they took some. It's just the small stuff, the little things, the details. We read through these Ten Commandments, and we find those that come pretty close really requires something of us. So it's a bit of fresh air to come to one where we can say, all right, I'm done. I'm good with that. What's for dessert today? Let's go. Short sermon. It's a good day <laughs> on both ends. <laughs> but then the details. Now, it could be that you're sitting there saying, well, now, Randy, have you looked around? This is not a secular audience to whom you are speaking. These are largely Christians, people who've made a choice about inviting Jesus into their lives, a choice about walking with him as disciples. We are people of Christian faith. Why are you talking about all these little details in our lives? We are not prone to those kinds of things. 
Truth be told, it's just a bit offensive that you would even point those out. Maybe. Or maybe I, I think of the writer, the pastor, James Emery White. White tells about the experience. He often went there. The experience of going to the Eagle and Child Pub in the U.K., some of you will recognize that name, the Eagle and Child Pub, because the Eagle and Child Pub was the place where the Inklings group met. C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, their friends, to talk about their stories, to talk about their writing, to share what they were working on with one another. A very famous place, certainly a place that many Christians would want to visit. Maybe have some mementos of, because this is an important place in our recent history. So James Emery White tells about going there, went there frequently, kind of got to know the person in charge. Listen to the story as he tells it. One day, as I sat at my favorite little table and another stream of tourists entered, and left, I heard the manager muttering under his breath, blasted Christians. I was enough of a regular to feel comfortable asking him what he meant. Take a look at this, he said, holding up a menu. menu. These menus cost me two pounds each, two pounds. I ordered hundreds of them, and now I only have ten left because they keep getting taken. You mean people are stealing them? I asked incredulously. Yeah. The blasted Christians take the menus while the sorry students take the spoons and ashtrays. Well, I could understand the students' obvious need for utensils, but I couldn't help but ask about the Christians. Why the menus? Why are they taking the menus? I don't know. It's what they can get their hands on. Good memento, I suppose. It got so bad, I started making copies of the menu that they could take for free, but they still take the good ones. I'm surprised they don't try and take what's on the walls then, I mused, looking at the pictures, the plaque, and particularly looking at the framed, handwritten letter from Lewis, Tolkien, and others commemorating the day they had drunk to the barmaid's health. Oh, those aren't real, he said. Those aren't real. Those are just copies. They still get taken. I'd never put the real ones up. He paused for a moment, and then he said, what gets me, what really gets me is that all these people who come in for Lewis are supposed to be Christians, right? I thought to myself, yes. Yes, they are. The irony is bitter. The manager of the Eagle and Child Pub, says White, holds Christians, and one would surmise Christianity itself in disdain because of the behavior of the Christians who flock to pay homage to Lewis. White closes by saying, many wouldn't dare drink a pint of beer, but they will gladly steal. I don't know. This commandment, you shall not steal. I haven't held any place up. I haven't taken my neighbor's car, and it's a nice one. I haven't held up a bank. I'm good. Check it off. Let's go eat. But the details, the details, because what it's saying is, 
I don't have a right to take anything that belongs to someone else as though it were mine. You know, like someone's reputation. That belongs to them. I don't have a right to, to take it and to speak of it in ways that causes them to lose it. Someone's academic work, their intellectual properties, their research, that student who spent all those hours studying for their test, that student whose test I can see if I lean just right, that's all theirs, not mine. A child's innocence. The innocence of a child. Churches, and we are one of them, have not done well with that. Moving into a child's life as though the adult has the right to steal their innocence. Dignity, self-worth, self-respect. Does the boss really have the right to dress down the employee in a humiliating manner in front of all the other employees so that at the end of it, their dignity, their sense of worth is in shreds and tatters on the floor? Does the attending have to humiliate the resident in front of the other residents so that their dignity is lost? Or what about freedom? Freedom. The ability, the right that these very Israelite former slaves are now experiencing. We have left all that behind. We are moving toward freedom. I read different sources that estimate that the number of slaves in the world today is somewhere between three and four times the total number of all of the slaves in the centuries of Western slavery combined. You think that's stealing? I don't know, the more I, the more I rummage around in the details of this commandment, the more uncomfortable I get. I want to check it off and join you for lunch. It's supposed to be a good dessert. But I'm losing a bit of my appetite. You shall not steal. Now, I realize I understand. It's a dangerous thing to talk in this fashion before a crowd of Christians because, after all, we're Christians. Why are you talking to us about stealing? That's offensive, Pastor. Have you heard the story? Story of the frontier town, actually up in the northwest, a logging town back in the day. All these loggers, few of their families, they finally decided, you know, it would be good to have a church here in our town. So using some of the lumber that they were logging, they built a nice little bit roughshod church. 
And then they scouted around, sent somebody out to find a pastor. They finally found a pastor, brought him back to live in that community. And they loved their pastor. He would preach week by week. They would learn from the Word of God. It was good. And then one day the pastor was down by the river, that river where the logs floated down to the mill from all of the different lumbering towns upriver. And that pastor saw some of his fellow townsfolk, some of his church members, dragging those logs in, dragging them up to the bank, dragging them up. Oh, they had the imprint of the lumber company upriver that had cut them down. They had the imprint on the end. But as the pastor stood there watching, he watched his people sawing off the ends of the logs. He went back to his study, prayed a lot, and wrote a sermon on Exodus 20:15. We're going to talk about the Eighth Commandment. And so he stood up there and he preached a sermon, the essence of which was, you shall not steal. End of the sermon, out he went to the door to greet hands as folks left church, and they said to him, Pastor, great sermon, wonderful preaching. You're always right on. Just keep bringing it to us. We appreciate it so much. And he went back to his study bewildered, befuddled. He decided, I'm going to preach on the same passage next week. So he started again, went to work on that same Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal, worked up another sermon. Next week he got up and he preached again on the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. But this week, this week, he added a detail. He, he said, you shall not saw the end off the logs in the river. And the sermon ended, and they ran him out of town. I understand. I, I get it. We're a group of Christians. You shall not steal. Check it off the list. Done. Good. What's next? What's number nine? Well, there are just some details, details we ought to consider. After all, you know what they say, the devil's in the details. I wonder, I, I wonder, could it be that those details could actually drive us to the feet of Jesus? Gracious God, we praise you that you are a God of high moral standards. We confess that while some may not have done great big things, there are a lot of details. So we repent, and we thank you for your grace. In the name of Jesus, Amen.